This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Things are heating up as we delve further into January 2020. Item number one, Cynthia Neely wins the Democratic nomination in the 34th State House District Special Election. On January 7th, she is the wife of Mayor Sheldon Neely of Flint, who just was elected this past November. Uh, She beat nine other candidates handily. She got uh, more than 28% of the vote in a large field. And this is an overwhelmingly Democratic district, so she is sure to win the general election in early March. And she will be seated, giving the Democrats a 52nd seat in the state house. The Republicans have 58. Item number two. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, or queer community in Michigan have announced they are going to launch a petition drive to expand the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act to include LGBTQ people as a protected group. Now, they're going to have to gain 400,000 signatures at least. That's counting uh, signatures that may be thrown out because they're invalid. Uh, The number is somewhat less than that that they'll have to collect legally. But believe me, they're going to have to get at least that many within a 180-day period. Uh, They have announced this. We'll see what happens with that. Item number three, former State House Speaker Tom Leonard Uh, The Republican nominee for attorney general in November 2018, defeated by Dana Nessel, the Democratic nominee, has been blocked by Michigan's two Democratic U.S. senators in Washington from being appointed U.S. attorney for Western Michigan. He was nominated by President Donald Trump last year and the two Democratic senators have a right under Senate rules to issue a block if they don't think he meets their standards. Now, that's what's happened so far. I don't think things are going to change in that regard, but that's a fact. That's happened, and it's a rarity. Seldom happens. A lot of protests, a lot of controversy with regards to that, but that's what happened just this week. Item number four, the ongoing interminable effort to recall State Representative Larry Inman, Republican of Williamsburg in the 104th State House District, continues seemingly hitting what could be a permanent roadblock this week because the Board of Elections said the petitioners did not get an adequate number of signatures to qualify to put a recall question on the ballot. Well, now, that isn't exactly news because that is what the Board of Elections at the state level ruled nearly a month ago. And yet, uh, it was contested. 
by the petitioners and a state court ruled, okay, we will give the petitioners uh, 48 hours more just this past week to see if they can prove that the 110 signatures short should be covered, let's put it that way, or redone or resubmitted or reproved as valid, and the recall standard threshold will be met and the recall can go on the ballot. Well, guess what? Uh, After 48 hours, the Board of Elections ruled the number of signatures was even less than they thought. It wasn't 110 short. It was 208 signatures short. So right now, it looks like there is going to be no recall election for State Representative Larry Inman. But folks, I got to tell you, this has been going on for literally months at this point, and it may not be over yet. So stay tuned, and I'll keep you up to date in the next uh, couple of weeks about whether or not anything else has developed. Now, number Five, item number five, former state Senator Jack Faxon died. Now, legislators unfortunately do die uh, after they've served in office. Jack Faxon was unusual. He was a Democrat originally from Detroit and then from Southern Oakland County. And he was one of only half a dozen former delegates to the state constitutional convention back in 1961 and 62. This was before he got elected to the state house of representatives in 1964. And he served 30 years in the legislature. He served six years in the state house. He served 24 years in the state Senate and he died at the age of 84 this week. There are only five former delegates to the Constitutional Convention left out of 100 uh, back in 1961-62. So that's kind of a milestone. Number six item is what is Governor Gretchen Whitmer going to talk about in her State of the State message on January 29th? Uh, Is she going to talk more about what she proposes this year to come up with revenue to fix the damn roads. Uh, Most speculation swirls around bonding as a possible panacea for her fiscal woes in terms of coming up with the money. She claims $2.5 billion a year for the next 10 years are needed. Uh, Let's see if she mentions that figure or that subject in her state of the state on January 29th. Finally, item number seven, uh, the green ooze pollution crisis in Oakland County has provoked a sharp exchange between Governor Whitmer and a state legislator. As details of the situation emerged, Governor Whitmer decided to blame the Republican-led legislature. Without evidence, The governor claims no monitoring was done because the Michigan Department of Environmental, Great Lakes, and Energy wasn't given the proper funding. Well, uh, State Representative Sue Allor, who is a Republican from Wolverine, representing the 106th State House District in Northeast Lower Michigan, 
found the governor's statement a complete shock to read. As chair of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Natural Resources, fire crisis could have been avoided. Anytime a similar request has been made in the past, funds have been provided, said Representative Aller. For instance, when funds were needed for environmental cleanup efforts in December 2017, the Republican-led legislature provided the necessary resources. And when the governor's budget shorted EGLE, that's Environmental Great Lakes and Energy, the department, on the number of staff necessary to address PFAS contamination, it was the Republican-led legislature who ensured sufficient staff was provided. So Governor Whitmer's response to the green slime situation points fingers at the Republicans, even though it was Whitmer who slashed $500,000 from the Renewing Michigan Environmental Fund and $15 million in funds set aside to continue the cleanup of PFAS-contaminated areas using her now infamous veto pen. Now, Representative Aller continues, and I'm going to quote here, quote, in her toxic partisan statement last week, Whitmer writes, it's time for Republicans in the legislature to ensure Eagle has the technology and resources it needs to keep the public safe. And Representative Aller continues, quote, to this I say, no, Governor, it's time for you to stop placing blame where it's not due, take accountability, and communicate with the legislature, unquote. I could go on, but... We've got to get to our first guest, so stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. Welcome back, and we have on the other line with us retired professor from Mott Community College, Paul Rosicki. He's also a columnist for East Village Magazine, and he's kind of the political guru of Genesee County, and we are very glad to have him on. Paul Rosicki, thank you. Well, good morning. Good to, good, good to be talking to you, and always good to be talking about uh, Flint and Genesee County politics. It never gets boring. It never gets boring, and I think there was an election this past Tuesday, right? And there was. What, 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 what happened? Rather unusual one in, in several ways. Uh, one of the smallest turnout elections that I can recall ever, about 6.7% of the potential voters turned out to vote on uh, on January 7th. Uh, Again, I suspect one of the smallest turnouts we've had in a very, very long time. Yeah, 6.7%. That's <laughs> not going to set any records, I don't think. I don't uh, think so. But uh, look, there were 10 candidates on the Democratic side of the ballot uh, for the Democratic nomination and only one Republican in a district which is overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, That's so right. whoever won the primary uh, is almost certain to be elected in the general election in early March, and who was that, and what does it mean? Well, that was Cynthia Neely that came out on top. She pulled about a little over 28% of the vote, although, ironically, that was only 1.8% of the total registered voters in that district. Uh, but out of, 10, out of 10 candidates, she came in first. Um, and exactly what it means, I think it's probably name recognition. I mean, frankly, her, her husband had just won the uh, 
mayor's office a, a couple of months ago, and uh, they put together a very solid campaign, both uh, some media appearances and some public activities in, in the area, plus the usual campaign literature. And I wasn't surprised that she won. I was surprised by a couple of other things in the election, though, is that who, how big the margin was. I mean, I thought it would be a very close competitive race between Neely and Santina Guerra, who's on the city council. But uh, Neely really outpaced everybody else by a hefty margin. She came in first with, uh, as I say, 28% of the vote. Uh, Sean Crowdy came in second with about 14% of the vote. And Guerra came in third with about 11% of the vote. And things went on down from there. So as I say, if there was any surprise for me, it was the fact that it really was not as close an election as I thought. I expected to be more of a, a kind of a toss-up between Crowdy, uh, between uh, Neely and Guerra, rather. And I was surprised to see Crowdy come in uh, a fairly decent second. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I should point out that out of the 10 candidates, nine were African-American. And I think this is a majority African-American district, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think about two-thirds of the population. It just covers about three, two-thirds of the city of Flint. And, yeah, I think about 65% or thereabouts is African-American. And there was one theory that we, I came across that somebody tossed out as I was talking about the election. Some thought Guerra would do better because he was the only non-African-American candidate of the, of the 10. And the feeling was, that, well, maybe he'd pick up so, the majority of the non-African-American voters. I'm not sure that played out that way when you look at the results. No, I agree with you. Uh, that was my thinking. I thought he had a chance because uh, the nine African-Americans might split up the vote. But Cynthia Neely won such an overwhelming uh, plurality, anyway, of the African-American vote that uh, Guerra couldn't, you know, catch up with her. Crowdy uh, is the son of a former chair of the Mott Community College Board of Trustees, Lenore Crowdy, right? That, that's right, yeah. And, and, and it's a well-known name. In, in, the, in fact, I, I often call this kind of a legacy election. There were a number of well-known names, like I say, uh, Neely, uh, uh, Crowdy, uh, Michael Clack, who was the son of uh, Floyd, and Brenda Clack, who previously had held the 34th district seat. Uh, so, as I say, it's, it's and there are other well-known names like Galloway, who was on the city council, Guerra, who was on the council. So, as I say, a lot of well-known names were in this race. It's, uh, as I say, almost a legacy race of some of the more famous families in, in Flint politics. Absolutely. One thing I think is really fascinating about this, um, I believe, honestly, uh, Paul Rosicki, this is the first time, certainly in recent history, and I think ever, that you have a mayor of a larger Michigan city, whether it's Detroit or Flint or Grand Rapids, Saginaw, Ann Arbor, Kalamazoo, you name it, any of those outstate, fairly large cities, who has a representative in the legislature <laughs> right? <laughs> who's in the same family. I mean, the spouse of the mayor is going to represent almost all of the city of Flint because I think this district, the 34th district, contains something like 80% of Flint's population, doesn't that, that, it? That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think that's true. And as I say, and in some ways that may have been one of Cynthia Neely's selling points is that, uh, you know, she didn't, certainly didn't hide her connections to the mayor and the fact that he had been a state legislator and a chair of the Black Caucus in, in the state house. So I think uh, that may certainly didn't do her campaign any harm at all and probably worked to her advantage. 
because she could say, well, you know, for the folks in the city of Flint, you're going to have a stronger-than-usual voice in the in the state house. Yeah, don't you think if you're the mayor, you feel pretty good about this result? <laughs> not, <laughs> Absolutely. Not, yeah, I mean, you could <laughs> And you might even add that, of course, the mayor's race a few months ago was extremely close. I mean, he, right. uh, yeah. he, he barely won by a little over 200 votes. Yeah, I think she's even noted, you know, I won by a bigger margin than he did. That's you right. <laughs> <laughs> they must have some interesting dinner table conversations Absolutely. over that. Well, you think going forward, I mean, is this, practically speaking, likely to be a big help to Mayor Neely uh, to have somebody in the legislature who is his wife? Uh, oh, I, I would think so. I mean, clearly, he's going to, in fact, I, I would, in many ways, I think that uh, Mayor Sheldon Neely is, is really a mentor to Cynthia. I mean, she, she has not held office before, and she admitted that in her literature, but she certainly has been around the legislative process with, with her husband. And uh, at many of the campaign events that, that she showed up at, he was there as well. So I, I, I suspect he'll be a, a significant mentor to her. And, uh, again, bottom line is it's going to be a, a louder voice for Flint in the State House. I suspect. You say uh, she had several media appearances and she ran seemingly a vigorous campaign, but wasn't there a debate uh, like the Friday before the election and she was the only candidate who didn't show up? That's right. Well, she was one of two. There was another fellow called Lang who didn't show up. But, yeah, there was a debate at, at a, a North End church on the Friday before. In fact, I was at that debate, and it was a rather well-organized debate. But surprisingly, the biggest surprise for that was the fact she was not there. Uh, a number of others who were there did a commendable job, presented things well, answered some some questions in in, in decent manner. But it was surprising in a couple of ways that she didn't show up for the debate, and also for the uh, the Flint Journal uh, profile, she did not submit one of those either. Now, whether that was a matter of simply confidence that she had the votes in the, in the bag anyhow, maybe she was aware of something, or maybe uh, I don't know what the other reason might have been. But, yeah, that was, it was quite a surprise. That was the only, only debate that I'm aware of during this, this very short campaign. You know, in terms of that turnout, this, the strange thing about the campaign was it was you know, only six weeks or so long. It took place during the holidays when everybody's paying attention to Christmas and Thanksgiving and everything else. And then on January 7th, a very unusual time for an election. So I, I was not surprised by the light turnout, all things considered. Right. Listen, uh, we could talk about this more, but uh, Professor Paul Rosicki, you've done a great job of explaining what happened in Flint and what's likely to happen going forward. Thank you so much, Paul Rosicki, for being our guest on The Political Insider. Always a pleasure. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us the mayor of Pleasant Ridge in southern Oakland County. But more importantly for this conversation, he is Kurt Metzger, and he is demographer to the stars. I mean, he has been doing population and census analysis uh, forever. I've been reading it. He's the go-to guy uh, for the major metropolitan Detroit uh, newspapers uh, trying to analyze these figures that come in from the census and population. Kurt Metzger, thanks for being with us. 
My pleasure, Bill. Good to, good to talk to you. Okay, well, let me ask you. Um, there were some reports that came out in the last week or so, and you were quoted as usual about a population trend in Michigan, even though the census officially every 10 years isn't going to begin until this year. Um, what did you make of those figures and where Michigan has gone in population growth or plateau or whatever it is over the last 12 months or so? Um, Michigan has seemingly, I think you, as you put your finger on it, seems to have plateaued. Um, there are a number of factors that go into the population estimates, and I think um, what we saw this time around, we, I kind of expected, I had looked at um, births and death information coming out of the uh, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, um, and we've seen births gradually going down um, in the state, and in fact, 2018 estimate of births from the state uh, was the smallest since 1941. Um, and this, I mean, it's tracking a national trend of decreasing birth rates and certainly families having fewer kids and they're marrying later. So Michigan is following that trend, although we tend to take these trends a little farther than we should. Um, and with an aging population, we're starting to see deaths going up as well. So Michigan is gaining less and less from what we call natural increase, births over deaths. But our biggest component for Michigan is this whole idea of migration. And we've always been an out-migrant state. In other words, we send more people to other parts of the country than we bring in from other parts of the country. And the Census Bureau, we've been doing better in recent years um, because of the economy and everything. We've seen those numbers go down, the losses go down. But 2018 to 19, for some reason, uh, the Census Bureau jumped those numbers and came up with about 24,000 more people leaving Michigan than coming in. And then finally, the final component is, it, is an immigration component. And we've been averaging about 23,000 immigrants per year coming into the state. And that dropped down to 13,000 in this latest number. So that was a drastic drop. And that combined with the, the increased out-migration meant that Michigan only picked up a little less than 3,000 people, which was the smallest, smallest growth that we've seen basically this decade. Yeah, I think I've read uh, that our peak population of all time was back in 2004. We were over 10 million, something like uh, 10 million, 55,000. Then... Uh, we started to lose, and the recession really hit us hard. We dropped, uh, you know, some 50,000 or so, maybe more than that, beneath right. 10 million. And, and slowly we've been climbing back up, but we're still short of 10 million right now, right? Right, exactly. We thought, we thought it would go over 10 million, or at least we were expecting it possibly. But um, the Census Bureau re- uh, estimated last year they dropped last 2018 numbers slightly and then this this very small increase this year uh, meant that we were still still below that 10 million mark so we may you know we we have the census coming up to see if we can actually hit 10 million um, but you're right it was 10 million 55 thousand in 2004 your numbers are perfect 
Well, you know, uh, a lot of people say if we could just get more international immigrants coming into Michigan, uh, and as you say, that number dropped this past year or in 2018 right. anyway, right. Uh, that would make up for the declining birth rate and the out-migration of our population and so forth. Um, what about that? Is, is, is there been any impact internally in the state with where immigrants from outside Michigan are coming to locate? I mean, are they coming uh, into particular geographical areas like, let's say, Arab Americans into Dearborn and West right. Detroit or, you know, maybe Mungs or other people into Grand Rapids because of activities there to attract them? What do you think? Yeah, it has been, we've seen, um, interestingly enough, Michigan's immigrants tend to be from the Middle East, from um, Asia, and to some extent from Eastern Europe. I mean, there's still Albanian and Romanian to some extent. But our biggest numbers have been certainly the Middle East population, both Muslim and Christian. So you've got, again, Dearborn is, is, is quite a stronghold for the Muslim population, Dearborn, Dearborn Heights. But you have this large Chaldean Iraqi population in northern Oakland County and also in northern Macomb County. Macomb Township, Sterling Heights areas, um, West Bloomfield, and other areas in Oakland County. So, so they tend to coalesce in the urban community. Detroit has been a big factor. The Asian community tends to be much more uh, present in, in Oakland County, and that goes from Asian Indian to Chinese to Hmong to Vietnamese to, to a number of other groups. So the more educated tends to be the more educated Asian populations go to Oakland County. So it's Rochester Hills and it's Bloomfield Hills and it's Troy. And then the less educated, the more Southeast Asian, the Vietnamese, Thai, Cambodian, um, and Hmong tend to be more in southern Macomb County, um, more where the, you know, the, the housing values are a little bit lower. You can get in. There's more rental opportunities and those things. We've seen a lot of refugees, both from Iraq and Syria, coming into the Detroit metropolitan area. And then, as you said, over in, in Grand Rapids, you've got a large Latino, growing Latino population, certainly some of it from, from migrant workers. But you've also got some of the, the, as you said, Hmong and some of the other groups coming in there. So they tend to focus on urban areas just because that's where the jobs are, that's where the opportunities are, and obviously they will come where they've already been established in terms of uh, country of origin. So we, so it's, and, and again, as I said, and, and you reiterated, is immigration has been able to stem that make up for the losses that we saw of domestic out-migration. But if indeed national trend is to decrease legal immigration, decrease the number of refugees accepted into the country, the whole trend that we're seeing nationally, that's going to have a big effect on Michigan. We've already seen that in the latest estimates, and that's going to be problematic in a number of ways. It's not just for population numbers. It's also for population growth, certainly birth rates but it's also for job creation and everything else that we see, all the positive uh, 
side effects of having immigrants coming into your area. You've probably looked at some other states uh, in the so-called Frost Belt or Rust Belt, like Pennsylvania, Ohio, yep. Indiana, yep. Wisconsin, Illinois. Is the pattern there pretty much been the same over the last decade? Where does Michigan stand uh, in relation to those other states in terms of what you just described? Michigan is, you know, I mean, this is not unusual. It's as we're seeing that whole Midwest uh, Frost Belt area when we when we talk about um, congressional representation, and you see all those states are kind of the states that you're mentioning are all predicted to lose another congressional seat after the 2020 census. That'll be our sixth loss seat in the last since 1970. Um, and we're seeing the same thing. You're seeing domestic out-migration from all those areas. I think Indiana was the only state in the in kind of the Midwest that saw uh, a positive domestic migration. One thing that we saw recently, and I haven't been able to analyze the data are not available yet, is Michigan was doing better than other, than other Midwestern states in, in terms of that kind of attraction and retention of young, educated population. We weren't doing great. I mean, certainly we weren't doing as well as the Southeast and the West, et cetera. But we were doing better than some of our other uh, neighboring states. So it's, it's, it's not an unusual pattern, but um, it, it's a problematic pattern. For right, right. Well, listen, you've given a great explanation of what has been happening in Michigan with population over the last decade, and for that matter, the last uh, 50 years. Kurt Metzger, who is the mayor of Pleasant Ridge, but more importantly, he is demographer to the stars. He's the man. Thank you, Kurt Metzger. Thanks so much, Bill. We'll be back. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned. We have with us, we're very fortunate to have Lou Jacobson. He is senior correspondent for PolitiFact, and he is also the senior author of the Almanac of American Politics, which is the Bible of American (laughs) politics. Lou Jacobson, thank you for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thanks, Bill. Look, I want to just ask you about your perspective uh, from a national uh, vision of where Michigan fits in uh, to the whole population trend of development and debate over the last decade going forward, the census this year. What does it mean uh, in terms of electoral votes, members of Congress, uh, the whole shebang? Just take it from there. Sure. So, um the census happens every 10 years by the Constitution, um, which means uh, in 2020 it'll be held and the data will be released in late 2020. Um, as part of this, part of the reason for the census to, to, to start with is to reapportion um, seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and what that means is that states that are growing get additional seats, states that are shrinking, uh, sh- shrinking relative to, to the other states at least. Uh, it doesn't mean they have to actually lose people in an absolute sense, but they have to be growing at a slower rate than all the other states. They 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 will be on track to lose seats in the U.S. House. Um, so we won't know the official numbers until um, until late 2020, and they won't be used, uh, for instance, in the electoral college for the 2020 election. It will be determined after that. 
Uh, so it'll, uh, it'll first affect the presidential race in 2024, and it'll first affect um, the seats for the House in 2022. But that doesn't stop people from trying to game, game this out ahead of time. And uh, every year, um, the U.S. Census Bureau releases um, population projections um, of, uh, of the 50 states um, uh, late in the year. And they did that again on uh, December 31st, I think. Um, and what this kind of allows people to do is to kind of play, play with the numbers and figure out which states are on track to gain seats, which, tracks, which states are on track to lose seats. Um, so uh, there are about 17 states, I believe, um, that are set to either gain or lose. Um, the biggest winners, Texas, uh, could, could get as many as three additional congressional seats. Um, Florida could get two more. Um, and then uh, five states could get one more seat, Arizona, Colorado, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon. Um, ten states are on track to lose a seat, um, and they would be Alabama, California, Illinois, Michigan, the topic of our call today, Minnesota, Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and West Virginia. Um, so uh, um, uh, what is notable, uh, and this is not at all a new uh, uh, trend, but um, you are seeing overall population uh, shifts from the Northeast and Midwest to the Sun Belt. Um, so you see states like Texas and Florida really winning big. Those are, are uh, you know, warm weather states uh, that have attracted a lot of population growth um, in the recent uh, census uh, checks, not only the one which is coming up. Um, and also you see Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, those also are considered sunbelt states. Um, where you're seeing losses, um, not, not all the places, actually, California lost a seat. Uh, it's the first time ever California would, uh, I guess, be on track to lose a seat anyway. Um, but the bulk of the states, uh, the 10 states that are on track to lose a seat, um, are in the Midwest um, uh, and, and to a lesser extent in the Northeast. Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and then more more in the Northeast, New York, and Rhode Island. So you really see kind of the big, broad national sweep continuing. Um, people retiring from or um, uh, or or groups uh, uh, um, expanding their footprint in the um, Sun Belt states, and this is going to have an impact. Um, so. Should I uh, uh, stop there, Bill? Do you have a question for me on well, that? Well, I would just say I saw one piece of speculation that indicated uh, maybe this is questionable, but given election patterns over the last decade or so, that actually these trends of the states that gain seats and the states that lose seats benefits the Republicans because it's largely in states where the Republicans have done better, like Texas and Florida. There could be a shift as much as 10 votes in the Electoral College beginning in 2024, all things right. continuing so, as they have. Yeah, no, um, uh, I think that that's a possibility. It's not the only possibility, though. What's, what's sort of interesting um, is uh, that some of these states that are gaining um, seats, uh, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. These are states where the Democrats are actually doing better over time um, due to growth in both minority groups and in kind of um, more uh, uh, more affluent um, suburban voters. Um, so uh, Texas has long been a rock-solid Republican state. Um, in 2018, you saw 
uh, a Democratic Senate candidate, Beto O'Rourke, um, nearly knock off the GOP incumbent, Ted Cruz. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, uh, a state that is increasingly um, of interest. It's already a minority-majority state in terms of population, but the voting rates of a lot of Hispanic voters in the state are far lower, and so the actual elect- uh, the actual vote uh, t- totals tend to be um, skewed more white than they are minority. Um, but over time, those uh, patterns are going to change, and with the, with the shift of uh, suburban areas increasingly in the Democrats' uh, uh, direction in the Trump era, um, uh, states like Texas uh, are um, uh, sort of new new targets for the for the Democrats. Um, certainly, Arizona. Uh, I've, I've got Arizona as a toss-up state um, for the 2020 election. I've got Texas as a lean Republican state. Florida also a toss-up. North Carolina also a toss-up. Um, Democrats have already gained in Colorado, um, and they're solidly um, uh, in charge in Oregon. So um, it's sort of a mixed bag, and we don't know. And again, between now and 2024, when the presidential race really takes into account these changes, um, a lot could change already. I mean, that's uh, basically four years from now. If you think back to 2016, uh, you know, think, uh, think about how much has changed politically uh, in terms of the geography of the U.S. Um, just in that uh, four-year four uh, period. So I think um, it certainly uh, could help the Republicans, but it also could help the Democrats in, in different ways. Lou Jacobson, um, I think that one of the things I've seen is that um, – when they make these annual population estimates, are they in sync with how the census turns out every 10 years? I mean, these are kind of estimates that we've been getting year by year since 2010, since the last right. census. Does it usually prove true uh, when the census actually rolls around 2020 that it so I think, underscores I do think historically. Um, uh, it has been um, fairly a, a fairly good predictor. Uh, you, uh, you know, might you see some changes on the margins? Maybe some of the states dropping off a list. Maybe uh, some, some states uh, joining the list uh, following a 2020 census. Sure, um, but it's generally a pretty good guide. I, I would be surprised if Texas and Florida don't don't end up gaining at least a seat or two. Um, what is un, unknown, of course, is when you actually conduct the the census itself in 2020, um, are there going to be uh, um, uh, uh, difficulties in terms of reaching people or in terms of people taking part? Um, different states have taken different approaches about whether they're trying to um, take active measures to encourage people to answer the census. Certainly it would seem to be um, in a, uh, a state's interest to bump up their numbers to uh, as close as 100 percent as possible. Um, but certain states, whether because of budgetary reasons or other reasons, haven't been doing that. Maybe the percentage uh, um, filling out the census forms uh, is less, um, and maybe that could change things on the margins. Um, so I do think that uh, there's definitely a big unknown going into 2020 how the census numbers will shape out and whether it'll be different from these projections we've been seeing the past 10 years. Yeah, Lou Jacobson, I don't think there's any question. We're going to be down to 13 seats in Michigan from 14 that we have now. By the way, we had as many as 19, believe it or not, as recently as 1982, so we have really come down. Look, I keep talking about this with you forever, but we're out of time. 
But thank you so much for giving a tremendous overview. Lou Jacobson, Senior Correspondent for PolitiFact. Thank you so much, Lou Jacobson. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll be back next week. Tune in.